Well, I want you to imagine with me for just a minute that you're Jesus. Okay, now I know that that is a preposterous thought, but just play along with me for just a minute. Uh, pretend that you're Jesus. And so you're in your mid-30s. You have, uh, over the course of the last three years, really began to make a huge difference in this world. In fact, this world is a better place. In fact, some have said that you have started to change the world. But all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, you are arrested on trumped-up charges. You are brought before the great high priest, the wicked high priest Caiaphas, and then he uh, uh, falsely accuses you and then sends you off to Pilate. Now, uh, the religious leaders in Caiaphas, they did not have capital punishment in their arsenal of, um, of discipline, uh, in their arsenal of uh, taking care of those uh, insurrectionists, and that's what they believed Jesus to be. And so they pass him off to Pilate. Now, Pilate could find nothing wrong with him either. And so what did they do? Pilate uh, throws him up into a higher court. King Herod was there in town visiting that weekend uh, for the festival that was going on. And so he stands before Herod. You're standing now before Herod. And you plead the fifth, essentially. It says as he stood before his accusers, he was silent. And, and so uh, you don't answer any of the questions of, of Herod. And so Herod uh, says, I can't find anything wrong with you and sends you back down to Pilate. Now, Pilate actually proclaims your innocence, but he cowers at the demands of a raging mob and executes you for political purposes. But remember, you're Jesus. And so three days later, you walk right out of that tomb with your resurrected body. And so this is the part that I want you to imagine if you're Jesus. You, you just suffered at the hands of three men uh, the most heinous of, of all things to, to, uh, to put to death a man that is innocent is the worst thing uh, that a society can do, I think. And so who are the people that you're going to come back and pay a little visit to? I'll tell you what I would do. Uh, I would wait until night because in the dark it's always better to scare somebody, right? And I'm going to head off to the temple residence, and I'm going to walk right through the door. And I'm going to appear before Caiaphas. I'm going to wake him up and say, how do you like me now, buddy? And then I'm going to head off to the palace. I'm going to do the same thing with King Herod. And then I'm going to head off to see Pilate. But now, even though I have the ability to walk through the door, to walk through the wall, to quietly come into his bedroom, no way. I'm going to wait till the middle of the night. I'm going to wait till the crickets are asleep. And then I'm coming crashing through that door. And I'm going to say something I've always wanted to say. I'm going to say, hey, Pilate, you like apples? How do you like them apples? And then after he sufficiently soils himself, I'm going to thumb my nose at him and say, smell you later, bro. And I'm going to disappear just as quickly as I came. Amen? Some of you this morning would probably join me in saying, yes, I would do that. But do you know who didn't do that? Of course you do. It was Jesus. There was no record that Jesus ever tried to settle a score. There was no record that Jesus ever tried to uh, go in and let the political establishment or the religious establishment know that he was back. Because Jesus understood and Jesus knew that his kingdom would advance not through grievance, not through resentment, not through settling the score, not through getting even, but through love. And this morning we're going to kick off a short series called Love Is. Love Is, and we're going to try to define love biblically over the course of the next few weeks. 
You know, it's 20 years after the resurrection that the Apostle Paul uh, wrote that the three greatest attributes of any believer, faith, hope, and love, but what did he say? The greatest of these is love. In fact, Jesus clearly teaches uh, his disciples that the identifying mark of believers to an unbelieving world will be love. So we contrast that with what the Bible says, with what uh, the gospel says, with what Jesus taught us. And we start to look, we start to contrast that against what our current culture says about love. You know, our culture says really that love is a weakness, that love and kindness just stand in the way of you trying to accomplish your agenda. And as pastors, sadly, we have seen this mindset begin to creep into the church. And what has happened in many cases is we have relegated the, the Bible passages on love just to be read at weddings. Ever since the book of Acts, when Jesus went up in chapter 1, the Spirit came down in chapter 2, and then in chapter 3, the church went out. Ever since then, the church has been engaged in a culture war. And in many ways, this is a good thing because the Apostle Paul says, be not conformed to this world. And so through the centuries, Christians have always looked for ways to be set apart from the world. But the manner in which we have done this has not always uh, uh, been the right way. It has not always been through love. In fact, often it has lacked love, specifically the type of love that Jesus displayed. It's as if we get so caught up in the battle that we forget why we're even here in the first place. Just this morning, I read of a challenge that Pastor Stanley, Pastor Andy Stanley, offered his congregation. He said, imagine a world where unbelievers were anxious to hire, anxious to vote for, to work for, to work with, and to live next door to Christians because of how well we treated each other and because of how well we treated them. Folks, we are not in it to win it. We are here to change the world, and the way that we're going to do that is through love. And so let me invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to a very familiar passage on love, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And while we're turning there, I wanted to let you know about an article, tell you about an article I read this week by Russell Moore. And Russell Moore is just one of the, the leading figures right now in pushing back darkness with light. And he contends that our culture war is not a new culture war. He says that our culture war is just a different culture war. Let me explain this. A thousand years ago during the Holy Wars, when we were uh, as Christians pushing back darkness, the enemies were the pagans. The enemies were the heathens. But in this current culture war, Moore argues that the target is no longer just people on the other side. The target has now become some of us, those that disagree uh, with some of our viewpoints, those that disagree with some of the things that we've said, or even those that disagree, or maybe they just show uh, empathy or sympathy towards the other side. What we've seen, even in Christian circles, is that we've seen truth weaponized. And we are grieved by that. And so over the next few weeks, we want to take a deep dive into studying what Paul says is the greatest of all these attributes. And since we believe in sola scriptura, scripture alone, let's agree, let's commit on the front end to live out of whatever truths we discover in the process. Amen? Amen. I'm going to read from uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the first seven verses. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. 
Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, if you're astute and you've been, excuse me, a, a member and attender of Liberty Heights Church for, say, the last six or seven years, then you will recognize that we have actually taught on this passage before. In fact, nearly six years ago this month, we were in a Grow series, and Pastor Brad taught on growing in love from this passage. And then two years ago, uh, during the pandemic, when we were watching by video, I taught on this same passage um, almost exactly two years ago. Now, if you remember, during that time, um, I think when I preached this, we were about two months into what was supposed to be a two-week flatten the curve, right? And it turned into two months, and then it turned into uh, two years, but um, I'm not going there. I was preaching by video, and we had uh, run out. I think our family was tired of video at that point. I'm not even sure our family watched it that morning. And to be honest with you, we could watch the metrics. We could see behind the scenes of who all was watching these messages. And so there were 19 of you that watched that message this morning. And so if you are one of those 19 people, good news this morning, we learn by repetition. And for everybody else in here this morning, just think of this as a fresh word today, okay? So love is, love is fill in the blank. What is love? Now we could go around the room this morning and make a pretty long list of all the things that we love. I love pizza. I love ribeye steak. I don't love seafood. In fact, I hate pickles, but I love pizza. Okay, I love that girl sitting right there in the front row. I love my brother. I love my sister. I love spring. I love vacation. I love Jesus. I love pumpkin pie. But you see how confusing that is? Because I just threw Jesus up on the same level as pumpkin pie. And right off the bat, this is confusing, especially in the English language, because uh, we use in the English language a single word to describe every type of love. We use L-O-V-E, love, to describe everything. But in the ancient Greek language, which Paul was writing on, it's a language that's no longer even spoken, uh, but in that ancient Greek language, there were at least three, if not four, maybe as many as seven different words to describe love. Now, we've taught this so many times, and so I don't want to spend too much time here, but let us, let's look quickly at some of the Greek words for love that Paul is not using. He's not using the word eros. Uh, eros is the Greek word best used to describe a sexual attraction. Uh, he's not using the word phileo. That's the Greek word that's uh, best used to describe friendship or social manners. Paul's actually using the word agape here. And here's the most important thing to understand about agape. Agape is a love that just gives. Some of those other types of love, there's give and take. There's uh, I give, I get something in return for how I give. But agape is all give. There's nothing I get in return. Uh, this verse is uh, best um, described in one of the most beautiful verses in the Greek New Testament is uh, John 15, 13. No one has greater love than this, than a man who lays down his life for a friend. That's agape love. It's all give. You can't give me anything back. There's no coming along and slipping money into my casket. I've given everything that I have to you. And so with that working definition in mind from John chapter 15, that love is a decision to self-sacrifice on somebody else's benefit, let's dive a little deeper into what Paul was teaching. 
Now, this passage is actually uh, goes through verse 13. We only read through verse 7. And it splits nicely into three different parts. And so we're going to look at the first two sections this morning. And then we're going to study the, the remaining section next week. But in this first section, these first three verses, Paul was saying, pursue love above everything else. Now, if you're my age or older and you grew up listening to Christian radio with your parents, I was a hostage in the back seat, and so I did not have access to changing uh, the channel. And so, uh, man, growing up, you knew that it was Christian music during the day, but it was Christian preaching by night. And so I grew up listening to guys like J. Vernon McGee and John MacArthur and Charles Stanley and one of my favorites, uh, died not too long ago, Warren Wearsby. And then my all-time favorite, even to this day, he's still a pastor in Texas, was Chuck Swindoll. And listen to what Chuck Swindoll said one time uh, about love. He said that the red ribbon, the silver medal in Christianity is generosity, okay? Generosity gets second place. But there is no doubt that the blue ribbon, the gold medal, is love. That's so good. That's exactly what Paul is saying in this passage. Now, we say all the time that context is king, that it's sometimes dangerous just to focus on an isolated chapter and to pull it out without looking at what's going on around it. And so let's look real quickly at what's going on around this chapter. You may remember from our beautiful mess series that chapter 12 was all about the spiritual gifts. It was about the gift of prophecy and the gift of uh, healing, the gift of uh, speaking in tongues. And then in chapter 13, what Paul is actually doing is he's actually correcting them on their motivation and how they were using their spiritual gifts. See, people were actually starting to compare their gifts with other people's gifts. And they're starting to get a little excited about the gifts that they had been given. It was becoming a source of pride. And what Paul is saying here, he's saying, I don't care what gifts you have. The context for expressing those gifts is love. Now, sometimes when we hear a very familiar passage like this, it's sometimes good to go to another translation. When I was in seminary, uh, I was studying the book of Hebrews, and I had to read the book of Hebrews every day for the entire uh, time of that course. I think it was seven weeks. And so, man, after about two or three weeks, the words were all starting to blur together, and it was all starting to say the same thing. And so one of the things I love to do is not only go to a different translation, but go to a paraphrase. Now, a translation, uh, what makes a translation a translation is that they go back to the original language and they translate from that into the English language. But a paraphrase is just somebody trying to take somebody else's translation and say, hey, this is what I think in common uh, everyday language, this is what it's saying. And one of the best uh, paraphrases out there is Eugene Peterson in The Message. And listen to how he uh, says these first three verses. He says, if I speak with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy but don't love... I'm nothing but the creaking of a gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything as plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give everything that I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr but don't have love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Isn't that great? No matter what I say, what I believe, what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. And in those three verses, what Paul is saying is he's comparing love to these other things and saying compared to love, these other things are inferior. So real quickly, what are those other things? The first thing that he says is inferior when being compared to love is being a gifted communicator. In verse 1, he says, if I speak 
Like this is a good word in our current celebrity Christian culture uh, where uh, you see many examples of people trying to make a brand for themselves, trying to uh, build a little empire for themselves. But Paul says, nope, listen, love is better than being a gifted communicator. Paul says then in verse 2 that love is better than the use of your spiritual gifts. He, he says, if I have all the prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, it still doesn't compare to love. See, you, using your spiritual gifts is a good thing, just like effective communication is. But what's the motive behind why we use those gifts? Does the use of our gifts make much of Jesus or does it make much of me? Listen to this verse from the New Living Translation. It says, if I had the gift of prophecy and I knew all the mysteries of the future and knew everything about everything, but don't love others, what good would I be? Paul's literally saying that I can have total knowledge of all things and it's still not enough without love. And then the last thing he compares, he says, love is greater than personal sacrifice. In verse 3, if I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, that's a little confusing there because it sounds like it meets our definition of self-sacrificing love, but evidently Paul was using hyperbole here. And he was calling out people that he thought were uh, giving with the motive to gain recognition. And Paul's saying that your motive is more important than the gift. He's saying that you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. Isn't that good? John chapter 13, I said this earlier, that Jesus uh, said that love is to be the defining character quality that should uh, define us, that should distinguish us as, uh, as disciples. That people should be able to look at us, the unbelievers should be able to look at us and say, I might not agree with what they're saying, but goodness gracious, do they love the world. These verses, I'm going to be honest with you, poked me a little hard in the chest this week. Like this was a hard one to study as we try to make this personal and look at this and it is love what defines me to the rest of the world. So often we hear a message like this, we think to ourselves like, man, I hope so-and-so hears this and I hope this person is in there and this person wasn't here but I'm going to send them the CD. Uh, no, this is about you this morning. Let the Holy Spirit convict you. It is love what defines me to the rest of the world. Remember the defining habit of agape love is that it gives and does not take. And some people will argue with you that, that you'll be taken advantage of and that you have to protect what's yours, protect yourself at all costs. Paul says, no way. He says, pursue love more than anything else, even if it comes at a deep personal cost. This is how Jesus wants us to see the, wants the world to see us, rather. This is how he wants the world to look at us and to recognize us as believers because of our love. And then as we move to the next set of verses, he shows us how he wants to do this. And so here we see to pursue love as an action. Pursue love as an action. In other words, don't just say that you love someone. Put feet to your love. Back in the early 90s, the craze in uh, popular music, pop rock, was for uh, these heavy metal bands to begin making these love ballads. You remember this? And these bands that I had never heard of and had never listened to on uh, any other radio station, and all of a sudden, uh, they're in mainstream pop radio. And one of the songs that lasted on the, number, on the charts number one for years was um, uh, um, saying that you love me more than words. And what the song says is, don't just say that you love me, show me that you love me. Put feet under uh, the emotion of love. Show me 
uh, through your actions that you love me. Don't just tell me. Now, if love is just an emotion, we can't control it, can we? Uh, let me prove this to you, okay? Um, be sad. And when I say be sad to you, you can't just command your emotions to be sad. Now, you can fake that you're sad. You can act like you're sad. Maybe you could even muster up a tear or two. But you cannot uh, command your emotions. Now, the world says, I've lost that love and feeling. Great song, right? I wasn't there in 1965 when the Righteous Brothers released that song, but I was there in 1986 when Tom Cruise brought it back in Top Gun. Amen? But here's the deal. According to God's word, you cannot lose that love and feeling if love is an action and not an emotion. See, if love is an emotion, we just, we, we just can't control it. We're hostage to it. We, we have to do what it tells us to do. But when love is something that you do, you, you can love somebody regardless of how they make you feel. You can love something regardless of how it makes you feel. 1 John 3, 18 says, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let's show the truth by our actions. Listen, this is how we love people that disagree with us. This is how we love our enemies. And this is why Jesus said that the world will recognize us as Christ's followers by our love because our love is revealed in how we act regardless of how we may feel. About 30 years ago, the, the uh, small group movement began to get really popular within churches. It might go back a little further than that, but 30 years ago is when we were all starting to get into small groups. And I remember that first small group that I was ever a part of, and, and the leader would read the passage, would read the verse, and then say, Chris, how does that make you feel? And then he'd go to the next person and say, how does that make you feel? And back then I couldn't articulate what was wrong with that. But now looking back, I, I realized like, that's the problem. The problem is that you're acting on how you feel. That's why we say Proverbs 4.23 all the time. Above all else, guard your heart, for out of it flows everything from your life. And so we protect our heart. We don't listen to our heart. We guard our hearts because we can't trust our feelings. We can't trust our emotions. I heard somebody once say, well, that's hypocritical to act in a way that's contrary to my emotions. Not according to 1 John, it's not. One of the reasons that I so detest uh, modern politics, and so this doesn't matter if you're coming from the left or from the right, that politics in general, I'm painting with a big brush here, have empowered Christians not to love people. And people, not issues, have become the enemy. And so what do we do? We look for traitors, we look for Karens, we look for heretics to root them out. Russell Moore in that article that I referenced earlier says culture wars and outrage cycles can fuel ratings and clicks and fundraising appeals, but they cannot reconcile sinners to a holy God. They cannot reunite a fragmented people. Church, we are bankrupt without love. We have a phrase around here that we use often. It's that God's word is not a curriculum to be mastered. Rather, it's a mirror to be gazed into. And so I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. I think there are 13 different attributes of love. And I want to ask these in the form of a question, and a question that we ask ourselves. In fact, let's use Scripture as a mirror. Let's hold it up. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to do surgery on our desperately wicked hearts. Unless any of us should be proud of our answers and pat ourselves on the back, remember, Jesus is the baseline here, okay? So Jesus' model of love is what we're comparing ourselves against. And so let's start out in verse 4. Verse 4 asks us, am I patient? 
Do I put up with others' imperfections, their faults, and their differences? Or have I become a clinging symbol in the hopes that my angry words are going to be a catalyst for change? You know, that's contrary to Scripture. It says that it was God's loving kindness that produced repentance in my life. And so am I giving people time to change? Am I giving people room to make mistakes? Am I patient? Also in verse 4, do I express kindness? Kindness is essentially patience in action. So the Greek word for um, uh, kindness is really useful. It means that I'm searching out somebody that has some emotional or spiritual or physical need, and I'm looking for a way to help them. And so am I looking for a way to help people, or am I just looking to point out flaws? Also in verse 4, do my actions depict me as being jealous or envious? It says, love does not envy. Listen, do I find myself constantly needing the spotlight? Do I find myself jealous when you're getting the spotlight? Sometimes this manifests itself in this attitude that says, I have to win, and for me to win, you have to lose. So do I crave the attention that you're getting? Love does not envy. Also says in verse 4 that love does not boast. So do others see humility in me? I love the language in the New King James Version. It says, love does not parade itself, and it's not puffed up. It's really all about humility. We say this often, that humility is not thinking less of myself, it's simply thinking of myself less often. And when I think of myself less often, I naturally begin to focus on other people's needs and other people's pain and ways that I can help them. See, arrogance is self-centered, but love is always others-centered. And so do others see humility in me? Then verse 5, am I rude? Am I rude? See, love has good manners. Love doesn't needlessly offend someone. See, one of the warning signs of a lack of love is when I have no concern or how, over how something that I'm uh, saying is being received. And so am I, am I grieved when I've said or done something that's received as unloving, or do I double down? Am I so focused on wanting to be heard or wanting to be right that I put little effort in making sure that the truth is saturated in love? Man, we have seen so many brothers and sisters in Christ take great pride in recent years in being offensive. Let's just stop doing it. Let's commit right now to stop doing that. Do I demand my rights? Verse 5, it says, love does not insist on its own way. So incredibly relevant right now because Paul is, uh, is describing somebody who's demanding their rights and screams long and loud when they think their rights are being threatened. This person has the idol of power and control, but love is just the opposite. Do I demand my rights? Verse 5 also says that love is, love is not irritable, and so am I thin-skinned? The New King James Version says that love is not provoked. It's not easily provoked. Here's the picture that Paul's painting. He's saying that love does not have a hair-trigger temper. That people do not have to walk on eggshells when they're around me. And so am I thin-skinned? Verse 5, I don't like this one. Love keeps no record of wrong. Do I keep score? Like, of course I keep score. That, that's what we do, right? I, I keep score. I want to know who's winning and who's losing. It says love does not hold grudges. 
and will hardly even notice when others do it wrong. Listen, a scorekeeper always notices so that later we can bring up your wrong to justify my behavior. I'm really good at this. But it's not love. Verse 6 says, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Do I get excited about finding faults in others? You ever use these words like, saw that coming from a mile away? Or how about this one? Serves you right. Or this is one of my favorite, told you so. Love is never glad when others fall short. I should never gloat when someone falls into sin. Moving on to verse 7, the last couple. Love bears all things. Do I love sharing about others' short, other shortcomings? I'm reading this week, and I'm like, sheesh, Paul, you're, like, you're not preaching, you're meddling here. See, love doesn't feel the need to tell everyone about what they saw, what they heard, what they believe about somebody. Here's a great place to self-assess. Think about the last whispered conversation that you had. My personal experience whispered conversations with other people are probably when I'm most guilty of sharing someone else's shortcomings. Paul says that love believes all things. It believes all things. So do I see the best in people or do I automatically look for the worst? See, culture says, believe nobody. That everybody's going to hurt you. That you have to always uh, watch your back. Assume the worst. Now, now, Paul's not saying that love is gullible, but it's this idea here that somebody is innocent until proven guilty, and, and yet the question to be asked, am I so cynical that I don't even let people start from a place of trust? Love hopes all things. Am I optimistic in my hope that love can change others? See, love sees the best in people, not the worst. Even our enemies, it sees the best in them. Now, we don't close our eyes to uh, or ignore reality, but we don't give up on people, even after they've disappointed us. Let, let me how you, uh, show you how we do this without even maybe thinking about it. We say, that person will never change. Man, aren't you glad that God didn't say that about you? When I see others like God sees me, then it drives me to pray for them. And it drives me to cry out that the gospel will change their life like it's changed my life. And then it says, love endures all things. Love endures all things. Am I in this for the long haul? The word endures is really a military term. In the original language, it means to sustain under the assault of an enemy. It has this idea of holding up under trial, this perseverance in spite of difficulties. You know what the perfect picture of this is? It's Jesus Christ on the cross. Listen, the Roman Empire could not have chosen a worse means to signify humiliation or domination than, than to crucify somebody that stood against their rule. See, a cross didn't just end somebody's life. It did so in the most ridiculing, the most uh, humiliating way possible. And it did this by magnifying Caesar's domination over the person that was gasping for air nailed to that stake. And so with Roman soldiers standing around and crowds screaming and rage and laughter, Jesus loved them to his very last breath. Love endures all things. Isn't that good? 
You guys are awfully quiet this morning. And I imagine this means that it's hitting you like it hit me this week. There was a lot of repentance in my life this week. And we're out of time, and I know you guys are like, thank God. Maybe you're sitting there this morning saying, Chris, these words roll off your tongue a whole lot easier uh, than they uh, do in my life because you don't know uh, my spouse, my kids, my boss, my neighbor, my fill-in-the-blank. And you're right. I I don't know what's going on in your life. And here's the reality. You you can't do this on your own. You can never live up to this list. In fact, no matter how badly you want your spouse to live up to this, or your kids to live up to this, or your boss to live up to this, they don't have the ability to live up to this list either. No matter how convicted you are this morning about love being an identifying mark in your life, you don't have the ability to do this on your own. But here's the good news this morning. You're a Christ follower. There is a force at work in your life that empowers you and enables you to do what is otherwise impossible. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Romans 8, 11. And when the spirit dwells in you, church, you can love like Jesus loved people, even when he was on the cross. And the best part is you don't have to do this on your own. Next Sunday, we're going to explore how and why Paul said that love is the greatest of all these attributes. But don't walk out of here this morning with your head down. Walk out with the confidence that, that, that... That the Holy Spirit has given you exactly what you need. He's given you the exact instructions that you need to love other people like Jesus loved people. And so what do we do? We renew our mind this week by immersing it in God's word. And when we immerse ourselves in God's word, when we pursue intimacy uh, with Jesus every single day, then what happens is it quickens the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to empower us to love the unlovable and to chase after those that are far from Christ. So let's pursue intimacy with Jesus with everything that we have this week. And let's let love overflow out of every corner of our hearts. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer for just a few moments. This morning, I want to encourage you during this time of response, you know, we... Learned last week that the gospel always demands a response. And so I'm going to encourage you to not think in terms of who needs to hear this or you hope somebody else is, this is getting through to them. Let the Holy Spirit do surgery in your life this morning and right now. Maybe you're having trouble loving like Jesus loved. Because you're not immersing yourself in God's word. That you're not saturating your mind and your heart with the truth of the gospel on a regular basis. And so would you commit this morning, right now, would you tell the Lord that this week I want to discipline myself. To renew my mind by spending time in your word, by spending time pursuing intimacy with Jesus. God, in the process, I ask you to empower me through the 
spirit that dwells in me to love people like Jesus did. For some, this may be a time of repentance. I come in here this morning having spent a lot of time uh, on my knees this week because these verses have just beat me up. Is love the identifying mark in my life? To an unbelieving world, would you confess that right now? Maybe this morning this idea of the Spirit dwelling in you is just this weird thought, and it is if you haven't professed Christ as Lord. The Bible says that when we profess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts that, he, that God raised him from the dead, that when we do that, that, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes and resides in us. He no longer resides in a temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So this morning, maybe the gospel is calling you to salvation for the very first time. And so your prayer this morning is, Lord, forgive me of my sins. When I compare my life to the life of Jesus, I fall woefully short. And so God, help me love in that capacity by coming in here and doing surgery on my heart. Forgive me of my sins. And help me walk in newness of life through the power of the Spirit that you have promised could dwell in me. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Even when your word hurts. And God, I confess to you the times when my first response is not loving, that when I attack people instead of issues, God, when I say something that elicits a, a response and a, a laugh from those around me, but it comes at the expense of someone else, God, I confess that this morning, and I ask for your forgiveness. God, I pray this morning that our church would become known as a, a, a place where love exists. As a place where uh, love is the most important thing. God, I pray that the unbelievers in our lives will be anxious to hire us and to vote for us and to work for us and to work with us and to live next door to us because of how we treat each other and how we treat the unbelieving world. God, help us this week in our quest to change the world like Jesus did. Help us to start doing it right now this morning as we walk out of here with the confidence of knowing that the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead also lives in us, will bring life to our mortal bodies because of the spirit that dwells in us. And God, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray all of this this morning. Amen.